Now the Apostle Paul showed us something of the power of tatimi, how to lie down behind the shield, behind the stone uh, as one who is dead. Um, to begin with, in his discussion in Romans, Romans 8 at verse 1, Paul said, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And as he unpacks Romans 8, around verse 14, he says, Now if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who gave Christ life from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies by His Spirit who dwells within you. And in Romans 6, two chapters previously, he developed at a greater length the symbolic reference to baptism as a burial. We are therefore buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also should walk in the newness of life. The picture of tetimi and histemi, when we die, when we lie down in defenselessness as if we are dead, the inevitable resurrection of the dead. Now although this occurs initially when we're born again, it is a continuing process as is described in the elementary doctrines of Hebrews where he says uh, in in the, the faith toward God, repentance from acts that lead to death, faith towards God, baptisms, the resurrection of the dead, he's really hammering this principle of faith. Now I know that you've almost never heard of the connection between faith and death because we have, we have such pitiful understanding of Scripture. So many of our great exalted teachers on faith are just popularity personalities who are clueless about what the Bible actually is speaking about in regards to faith. They just don't know because they were fixated on getting money from people with a mischaracterization of Scripture to make it into kind of a token or a talisman that you could, or spell or a, cha- a charm or a chant, chant to, to, to stir up the soul to a fervor using Scripture to try to hold God upside down and shake money out of His pockets. It is pitiful beyond belief and that's part of the reason why God is casting aside the main teachers of this horrific tragedy. It's God who's doing it. 
The focus of God in recent years has been upon the money changers in the temple. Before that, it's been on the exploiters of the children. And now it will be the mixture of godliness and humanism or paganism in the church as he sifts. You see, this great sifting is not a new thing, but it's reaching a crescendo when nothing is left unshaken that has, like thieves polluting the temple, come in and corrupted the house of God. When God is done, all these great doctrines will be rescued from the hands of merchants and thieves and given back to the people of God. So, the shield of faith and the reference to a sepulcher and death, the form of which is to Timi, to lie down in anticipation of Istemi, God raising up, all of this is elaborately pictured in imagery of baptism, which is a type of the recreation, a symbolic recreation of Tatimi. Because baptism comes about, baptism in water comes about when one recognizes that the lordship of his or her life has taken them nowhere. And they now are content to yield the sovereignty of their lives over to the purposeful intention of God which was known from the beginning. In other words, God is not trying to figure out what to do with you when you give your life back to Him, the symbol of which is baptism simulating burial and resurrection being accomplished by the Spirit of God. God knows who you are before you were in your mother's womb. Death is really death to your ways, to your ideas, to your imperatives about your life. The suffering of the believer is about the rescue of the soul's idea of what your best life is and the return of that sovereignty over your life to Christ. And you will find the expression and the economy that empowers it, both what it is, what is your life supposed to be about and the power to accomplish it, you'll find it in the state of being assembled to Christ, which is what the Spirit of God does. These are elementary doctrines. These are not the sophisticated understandings that come uh, by revelation of the mysteries of God. These are things you should always have known. But as I have said, and you know, I, I, I know that at times I get off on this, but I'm horrified when I think of how the house of God has been plundered by merchants and thieves who pompously speak as though they represent God when they themselves don't know God, but they're driven by the lust to acquire things 
at the expense of the deception of the people of God and they're not shameful at all about it. We've reached a time when God Himself is overthrowing them, as indeed He will, as we retake these great doctrines uh, for the benefit of a people who are starved for bread, who should know these things, uh, they should have always been taught these things growing up in the house of God, but the truth is the church as we know it has long been controlled by vagabonds and thieves. Paul puts it this way, to further deconstruct the notion of the shield of faith being the stone in front of the sepulchre, signifying death which grants you immunity from prosecution, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, having described that condition previously in the 6th chapter, I was quoting the 8th chapter of Romans, the 6th chapter talks about death, burial and resurrection, defining baptism as burial inasmuch as the lordship of one's life has been intentionally ceded to the sovereignty of Christ and the sign that that is so is that one is baptized, baptism being the burial of that which has died to the lordship of its own way and its own thinking. In that condition, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead resurrects you, which then is Romans 8, speaking of a life-giving Spirit issuing forth in new creation and that life-giving Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, is how God begins to stand up in your person, in your natural body. That's the histemi to your tetimi. Now, God standing up in you does so in seven characteristics, five and two. When God stands up in you as a new creation, seven characteristics of the Divine Presence begin to manifest in you. The first is the spirit of rule, lordship, then wisdom, knowledge, understanding, counsel, power and the fear of the Lord. I discovered this amazing passage of Scripture recently. I'm always discovering astonishing passages of Scripture and it's Proverbs 8, the 8th chapter, speaking of Christ. I recommend it highly. Look for how the seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit, the seven lamps that are blazing in front of the throne of God, how they 
uh, adorn the one described as a shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse who is adorned with the seven characteristics of God. I point that to you and this, this pattern is repeated over and over again in the scriptures. You, cannot, you almost cannot find a place in the scriptures where knowledge is referred to or understanding is referred to or even wisdom that does not have a reference whether directly or veiled to all of the rest of the seven characteristics of God because that is precisely how the histemi of God occurs in the place of your tetimi. He stands up in you in seven characteristics. Now what's the importance of this? The enemy has no ability when God stands up to gain any ground. He has no ability. The defeat is utter and total and instantaneous. What, is the, what are these fiery darts of the enemy? I'll take just a moment to define them but I'll do that in greater detail later. The fiery darts are his accusations, his accusations concerning your relevance. How often have you felt all of a sudden, you're going along, you, the day is fine um, and then you're under attack where you feel like a fraud. You feel like you're going to be exposed any moment that in spite of the brave face you put, put on, that something is going to happen that trips you up and uh, you're standing naked before an audience that suddenly sees you unclothed and vulnerable. Uh, some people even have those as recurring nightmares. That's how the enemy comes in suddenly. But when you are dead and you offer no defense, you, you don't try to be to, to, to reference your resume. I've accomplished this and I've had this degree and uh, I speak on platforms all over the world and so on and so forth. You don't go there. You don't, you don't look at your resume for your comfort. What then happens? All of a sudden God lets you read the room like it's a, a newspaper. He lets you see why people are asking, why the challenge that have suddenly come up. What's the enemy trying to do? I mean, he gives, you under, he gives you knowledge of such things. He gives you understanding as to the dynamic of that particular group. He gives you wisdom to know how to engage the discussion and he gives you the spirit of counsel. So you go right to the heart of the matter. And all the while, 
you never rely, you never for a moment think about your competence because you are sure that He will flow through you and it changes the situation immediately where you're no longer the tail, you're the head. You're no longer the one under attack, you're the one giving direction because it's His pleasure to appear in you when you offer no resistance to the enemy because you have lain down in the silence of death in complete trust that God cannot fail to show up in the circumstances of whoever puts his trust in the living God. This is faith. This is what faith is about. It's not this nonsensical rubbish that these practitioners of the art of theft have offered you. They're the only ones who get rich by that. It's not about money. It's not about money. You have to beg God for the supply you need. He'll give you everything that that you need for what He's called you to. It's when you substitute what is necessary with the spirit of greed that you begin to be anxious and nervous and worried. We should be content in the circumstances to which God has called us, even if they're not the final circumstances that we'll end up with, for God knows the way we are to go. Now let me show you what Paul said about that. I want to read from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the prelude to which is Paul spoke about knowing a man, and he was really speaking of himself, 14 years ago from the point where he was writing this uh, in the first century and he couldn't declare definitively whether he was in the body or whether he was out of the body. This is analogous to John uh, in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation who says, suddenly a door was opened to him into heaven and he had been walking around on the island of Patmos where he had encountered the Lord in divine manifestation and then, but then it scene switches and he says, suddenly a door was opened in, uh, uh, to me into heaven and I was suddenly in the Spirit. So this is the same dilemma here with Paul. He said he was caught up to the third heaven and repeats that whether he was in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know, did not know, didn't care to know, but he was caught up to paradise, which is synonymous with the third heaven, and saw things that were unlawful for a man to utter. He was not given permission to utter the things he saw, visions uh, of the heavenlies that the timing for which uh, in his day was not granted. More of the timing was revealed uh, to John and by now most of the timing has been revealed because the Holy Spirit is the one with the hand on the controls. 
So when it's time uh, to reveal on earth that which has been placed in the heavens to be revealed on earth, God will reveal it on the earth by the Holy Spirit, hence the seven spirits of God, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, counsel, power, uh, lordship, the fear of the Lord. These are the seven characteristics that retrofit us and define the new creation in the warfare with Satan. That's why these might be considered the working of his mighty power. Now, look at what Paul says here in the ensuing verses about what triggers the resource of the seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. He was given revelation and insight beyond measure, in fact, by uh, exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation. And he said, a thorn was given uh, to him. And he describes the thorn as, quote, a messenger of Satan. That's the thorn. So no, it was not uh, poor eyesight. It wasn't that he walked with a limp or spoke with a lisp. It's very definitive, a messenger of Satan, thorn in his flesh. Now we have an actual example of how this thorn in the flesh worked. Uh, When he was in a certain city, a demon-possessed woman followed him, him and Silas, was in the town of Philippi and yelled for three days, followed them and said, these men are servants of the Most High God. Well, Paul, like Jesus, would not accept and did not rely upon any attestation by the devil himself in any form. He suffered this woman for three days and finally he commanded the Spirit to leave her because he knew it was a trap. That's why it was a thorn in his flesh. He knew it was a trap. The woman was a money maker for her handlers. She was a soothsayer for her handlers and she foretold future events. And uh, when Paul drove out the spirit, the woman was no value anymore to her handlers, to her owners and handlers. So they had him thrown in, into prison. Uh, Now, this thorn in the flesh was a minister or messenger of Satan to torment him, to buffet him, lest he be exalted above measure. It was given to him to always remind him of this one thing. He said, "I I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And the reply of the Lord was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, when I am lying down dead, when I I'm in, I'm in a posture of, that may be described as tatimi, 
understanding under, but really not standing, lying down. When I'm weak in that way, he in me arises in perfect strength. So then he says, therefore, most gladly, in other words, I will exuberantly embrace this position of Tatimi that defines me as being dead, that defines me as being incapable of resisting. I will gladly embrace that condition. How ought we to, uh, to stand under in faith, the substance? How are we to stand under? Gladly in weakness, gladly in the condition defined as tatimi, gladly. I wish that we could be brought to that because we all want to offer, we all want to offer defenses, explanations, things that don't seem to diminish us so thoroughly, kicking around in the last remnants of our strength. Whereas Paul who was mighty in word and deed, knowing the scriptures more than most, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, uh, profited above my fellows, concerning the law I was blameless, zeal was defined as all of that, persecuting the church. He said, I laid it all down. It didn't matter to me. I considered it to be rubbish for this excellency of the histemi of Christ, him standing up in me. And here, this is what he says, I will boast rather in my infirmities. I'll tell you about the ways that I didn't succeed. I'll tell you about my shortcomings. I'll confess easily and readily to you my incompetence. I will rather boast about my infirmities so that the power of Christ may rest on me. What does he see the armor of God as being again? The power of Christ, the distribution of the power of Christ to you. And he's talking about the effective working of the power of Christ in you in the condition of Tatimi. Therefore, he said, I take pleasure in infirmities the stuff I can't do myself. I'll take pleasure in reproaches when they speak ill of me, in needs when I don't have the resources like I think I should have. I'll take pleasure, I'll search out what God means for me to know and to understand when I'm limited as that. In persecutions, I won't try to get out of hardships or blame somebody else or protest or go on marches or whatever. No, in persecutions, in distresses, when I'm on the edge, for Christ's sake. Why? Because when I am weak, condition of tatimi, weakness even unto death, when I'm weak, then I am strong. Why? because I've exchanged my power for His. 
against his authority, against his power, the enemy can never succeed. The gates of hell cannot defend their territory when you come clothed with Christ. You'll pardon me saying, this is very powerful. This is truly powerful. It's powerful not because I've been yelling and screaming and stirring up your emotions. It's powerful because it restores to its place of prominence the truth of the shield of faith functioning as a stone in front of a sepulchre, granting immunity to the person who has died because next up is the resurrection and he is resurrected in seven characteristics that completely retrofit us to come forth as a new creature, new creation with increasing power, with increasing authority to put the enemy under our feet. We still need to touch the other two meanings of the shield of faith, one being the door and the other being assembled, placed in the house of a righteous father. We'll continue to deconstruct the shield of faith. That's why he described it as above all else. It is the overarch under which all the other understandings are designed to function. Who are you in Christ? I'm Sam Solon. We'll continue to deconstruct the shield of faith. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.